2: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. You're with Talk on TV, on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, BBC faces a backlash after they still refuse to call Hamas terrorists. Keir Starmer tells Talk TV he will tackle the migrant crisis straight away if Labour get into power. Uh, The PM says he wants to create a smoke-free generation. Could we see tougher measures on vaping as well as smoking? Now, incredible story, this. Uh, The Times, uh, uh, in The Times today, apparently convicted rapists and burglars could be spared jail from next week after judges were told that the country's prisons are full. Crown Court judges have been ordered to delay sentencing hearings as prisons are bursting at the seams. Uh, Joining me to talk about this and some of today's other big stories is former Conservative adviser and commentator, Leon Emirale. Uh, awful story this, early on. It's a crazy story, Kevin,
3: and what I'm trying to understand here is what's the point of the government if they can't keep some of the most dangerous criminals off of our streets? I mean, haven't, haven't they failed in their most fundamental sort of duty to us, the British public that they, you know, keeping rapists potentially on the streets for extra weeks when they should be banged up in prison? And I think it's just a complete failure of the British
2: state. What's going on? Absolutely, uh, and I, I gather that this crisis... Uh, has been caused by the fact there's uh, literally only about 130 empty cells left all over the country. Yeah. That's ridiculous.
3: Yeah, and they're trying to come up with these sort of harebrained ideas for how they can get away from this and how they can remedy the problem. Some of them are suggesting that we sort of ship prisoners... Overseas, And that seems to become a theme for this government, that they are abandoning their domestic duties. You know, what are we going to do with with, with illegal immigrants arriving in this country? Ship them off to Rwanda. What are we going to do with rapists and burglars? Ship them off to France. It's insane that we haven't got the capacity to deal with that in this country. And I think it's a real, you know, damning state
2: of of affairs in this country. Yeah, they are uh, contracting out governing Great Britain, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Literally. Uh, But, you know, I gather that... uh, if, if people have been convicted of rape, uh, they are likely to stay inside uh, on uh, remand until mm. their sentencing. Uh, but uh, we're not guaranteed completely that people who have been convicted, convicted rapists, may well be let out on the streets to await their sentencing. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, accused rapists are almost always given uh, bail. Uh, So all in all, uh, no wonder people... uh, And if you add to that the fact that our conviction rate, our successful (laughs) prosecution rate on uh, rape is less than 2%. All in all, uh, this is a bad situation for the women of this country.
3: I think it's a terrible situation for the women in this country. And what I have to ask is, where is the deterrent now for those criminals? And this isn't sort of petty crime. These, These are huge crimes, whether it is rape or whether it's burglary. Uh, that, that's being discussed. And I just think, why, why, if you're in that situation to commit those crimes, why are you sort of suddenly now seeing that you might even be spared the greatest uh, sort of comeuppance for doing that? So I just see this as a, a sort of carte blanche now for those criminals to go out and do what they want. And if I was uh, in that situation, whether it, be as a, whether it was as a woman, whether it was as someone who's been a victim of rape or someone who's been burgled, I would be utterly appalled that we haven't got the capacity
2: to lock these criminals up, and there are so many crimes now, Leon, that uh, perpetrators know that they can proceed, they can commit mm. with impunity. You know, we're talking about, you know, burglary. Yeah. We're talking about car theft. We're talking about bicycle theft. We're talking about, of course, shoplifting. Mm. Uh, now, so once you the criminal classes, if you like, get to know that there are all these offences that they will never be nicked for. Yeah. Uh, the dial keeps going up. Yeah. So you start off with car theft and shoplifting before you know where you are, you're talking about rape.
3: Yeah, and it should be the case that you commit your sort of petty crime as a teenager and you get such a hard slap on the wrists that you don't then go and progress to, to, to greater crimes as it were. In this country i feel like we're in a situation where you commit your petty crime you get away with it you progress to something that's more serious you get away with it and exactly as you say before you know it you're then talking about rape burglary and who knows what else so i think we are in a situation where the deterrent for criminals doesn't exist and that is not a good look if you're the conservative party the party of law and order the party of law and order and you're trying to tell the country that actually you know we'll keep you safe don't worry about us well, you're looking at this, these figures and saying, you can't even put criminals in jail. You can't even process their, their, you know, their, their, their legal claims. So I just find this disgraceful and I do genuinely think the government has failed in its fundamental duty to keep us
2: safe. I've got two words for Rishi Sunak and indeed the Home Secretary, Suella Bravman. Zero and tolerance. Look at these kids walking the streets with these zombie knives. Yeah. They're like swords yeah. or machetes. That poor girl a couple of weeks ago in Croydon stabbed to death with a machete. Yeah. Uh, but another kid uh, accused of doing it. Yeah. Now, kids are walking around the streets, particularly of London with these, and uh, if they get caught with them, they basically say, oh, you're very naughty, yeah. you shouldn't really have that knife. You know, It's very bad. Yeah. Uh, what I think we should do is bang them up for five years. Uh, that'll get the message through. That's what ki- uh, both... Uh, Rishi and Suella should be thinking about. They're the party of law and order. Start acting like it.
3: I haven't got the room, Kevin, to bang them up for five years because the prisons are, are at breaking point. Uh, that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> I you, forgot about that. <laughs> you, can't, you can't even implement that type that's, of that's policy it. that we need. That's
2: oh, it, isn't it? Uh, uh, so build more prisons, for God's sake. Uh, let's uh, move on. Uh, now, Keir Starmer has given an exclusive interview to Talk TV's uh, political editor, Peter Carbwell... Uh, in which uh, you would have noticed, uh, Leon, as a politico, uh, that the big uh, glaring omission in his keynote speech up at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool, he never even mentioned the migrant crisis. Mm. Uh, I would suggest that is because he uh, doesn't have any solutions just like Rishi and Suella don't. However, uh, Starmer said he had a plan to stop the migrant boats uh, and uh, he would uh, get our sovereign borders back into order, and also he would solve this crisis. Didn't actually say how.
3: No, it's very Keir Starmer, isn't it? Yeah. It's sort of Starmer's. I'm playbook. going
2: to solve the crisis. How are you going to do that? Don't know. Dunno. not sure
3: yeah and i think this is this is the problem with starmer i thought he actually gave a decent speech uh, and i think that he he did sort of allay some of the fears that the public might have about voting for labor but as you say kevin that omission not talking about illegal migration and all he did in that interview was talk
2: about uh, th- why it's wrong why it's bad well let's watch him obfuscate uh, take it away keir
4: starmer strong action needs to be taken this is a deep cause for concern nobody should be crossing the channel in those boats. I think the first thing we have to do is take back control of our borders. I think the government's lost control of the borders. I would want to start this straight away, and that's why I was over um, with Europol, which is where there's coordinated police action just the other month talking about security and how quickly we could set up these operations. We have to break the gangs that are running this vile trade. And, you know, this is where the failure of the government has been at its most extreme because it's lost control of the borders.
2: Uh, Labour, take control of our borders. Uh, what do you make of that, then, Leon? <laughs> it
3: was just word soup, wasn't it? I mean, it was, you know, We've got to take control of our borders. I mean, it doesn't quite have the... He's basically... Going to take, back control. take oh, back control.
2: Where have I heard that before? He's running
3: the playbook, isn't he? Yeah. He's trying to appeal to that red wall. Uh, and I just think it's a bit cynical from Starmer. I think if you've got a brain cell, you're looking at that and you know exactly what he's doing. He's not come up with any actual practical solutions. All he's doing is saying tough words and it sounds good. But, you know, I think that's disgraceful again in terms of his political... Uh, antenna to not understand that people are smarter than that. They know that politicians have been trying to stop this problem for years now. There hasn't been an easy solution. There isn't an easy solution. So you do have to come up with policies that are a bit more sophisticated than that. And I don't think Staham's got it in his arsenal to do it.
2: I don't think so. I mean, omission was the uh, big uh, order of the day up in uh, Liverpool at the Labour Party Mm. conference. So he didn't mention the migrant crisis, Quite a big issue, I might suggest. Uh, And in her keynote speech, the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, never once mentioned the word inflation. Why not? Because actually, Rishi, uh, of his five pledges, uh, that most of which he'll never manage to honor, uh, particularly the migrant crisis, I'll stop the boats. Remember that on the front of the election? Uh, how's that going for you then, Rishi? Not that well, I might suggest. However, he did say it half inflation by Christmas mm. uh, and he's on course to do that. Mm. I mean, not say he's on course. The country is on, on course to have half inflation by Christmas and therefore Rachel Reid didn't mention inflation. The, cha- the shadow chancellor didn't mention inflation in her speech. Yeah. Uh, It's It's just a slick political operation. I mean, credit to Labour, they're looking quite slick, uh, but uh, do not be fooled... This is sophistry in action, isn't it?
3: I think it is, and I think, actually, when you look at the biggest economic issue facing this country is inflation, it is bills, it is the cost of living. And if you don't mention that in your speech as Shadow Chancellor, you have to question, what exactly is your plan for the economy? But as you you say, Kevin, the Rishi Sunak will take credit for inflation beginning to fall. Nothing to do with him. I mean, it's the Bank of England, ultimately, that sets the interest rates. And what Rachel Reeves has said is she'll invest this huge amount of money in in, in what they're calling the sort of the Green Recovery Act Act or whatever the, the, the correct terminology they're using, I think it's about 28 billion, a huge amount of money. Now, there is an argument from some economists that could actually increase inflation. Jeremy Hunt says that's going to increase inflation. So the jury's out on whether or not her policies are actually going to work.
2: Yeah, there, there's nothing costed by Labour. I mean, this housing programme, 1.5 million houses, not to be built on greenfields, not no. to be built on brown fields. But something I've never heard of before, greyfields. How about that? Uh, it's, it's word soup, as you said, Leon, and it's not costed. Uh, one of Labour's plans, by the way, is they will insulate 19 million British homes. Yeah. How much do you think that's going to cost? Uh, they don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's, huge,
3: it's huge sums that we're talking about. And you know, <laughs> that, that, that is, on one hand, good for the economy because it gets money moving. But on the other hand, while inflation's high, perhaps it's not the right time for it. I actually thought the grey belt line was quite clever mm. political branding from Keir Starmer because we've all got this sense of the green belt yeah. must be protected, these gorgeous rolling hills of the British yeah, yeah. countryside. When you rebrand it to the grey belt, it doesn't yeah. sound quite appealing, as appealing, does it? So no, Perhaps it doesn't. You're, you're, you're less inclined to oppose yeah. building on that I type didn't of think land. much
2: of the brown belt either. That sounds <laughs> disgusting. Uh, let's uh, talk about uh, Tory illiberalism. Mm. Uh, what on earth is this Prime Minister of ours doing, as a Conservative, Mm. all about small government, Mm. this government, we are Conservatives, we will not stick our nose into your life, uh, announcing that, you know, if you're born before 2008, you won't be able to smoke anymore. If you're born after 2008, you can smoke. Apart from the fact that practically, in the real world, that is a ludicrous system, extremely divisive, and bound to lead to a... uh, blossoming black market trade, Uh, you know, a conservative prime minister should not be telling people how to lead their lives.
3: Kevin, I disagree with you there. I do disagree with you, and I am a conservative. I want to see a small government, not a proper one, obviously. Maybe not, maybe not. But <laughs> I, I, I do think, when it comes to, to young people, when it comes to kids, you know, should they really be given it's the, the, the government's the choice? job?
2: That's not the government's job to be doctor to the nation. This is something to do with the COVID crisis. All of a sudden, prime ministers and governments think that the medical health of the nation is their top priority. It's none of their business. If I want to smoke, if I want to drink, if I want to eat fatty food. But that's up to me i'm a grown up but you not can you
3: can this this policy is aimed at kids and and i actually think that that's you know that that's right we
2: shouldn't be letting I sort kids of think they should make their own decisions <laughs> we shouldn't well. let kids but make then, their own I decisions. i suppose i'm an extremist on this but uh... <laughs> it's
3: going to save it's going to save the nhs a lot of money as well you know in, in the long Ugh. term and i think that <laughs> i think that it's not a bad policy in my view smoking is not something that we should be encouraging uh, and it's not
2: I, well I think on all of this I mean a point taken of course Leon uh, you know uh, nobody should smoke adults or kids we're not I'm not encouraging that I'm just saying that it isn't the government's job to do this educate mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. about Agreed. smoking educate adults about unhealthy food unhealthy lifestyles etc yeah. but t- do not order us around do not order us around that is not conservative that's socialist. <laughs> Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Right, moving on, some truly shocking news that war in the Middle East is having an impact on British Jews. Ministers say they are extremely concerned over the fact anti-Semitic incidents have tripled since the Hamas invasion of Israel. Absolutely shocking stuff. Joining me to discuss this is uh, Gideon Falter, the chief executive of the campaign against anti-Semitism. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, uh, Gideon. Uh, now, uh, I live i live fairly near Golders Green, so I've seen this at first hand. There have been attacks there. Uh, somehow or other, within minutes of this invasion on Saturday, people got onto railway bridges and printed Free Palestine, which was quickly taken down. Uh, but uh, big pre- police presence. Uh, we're hearing stories of Kids being told, don't wear your uniforms on the way to Jewish schools. Uh, my, my question to you, uh, Gideon, is why on earth, given what happened on Saturday and through the weekend, this, Israel was the victim here. You know, this was an outrageous, grotesque attack by Hamas on an innocent country that was just going about its business. And yet the reaction back in Britain seems to be evil Israel, down with Israel. Uh, that's perverted, isn't it? What's wrong with us?
0: I think a lot of people who um, have been you know, on the wrong side of this for a very long time have really started to show their true colours. I mean, if you see something that barbaric and, as you said, grotesque, a terrorist attack like that, targeting children, the elderly, women, men indiscriminately, and you come out onto the streets and celebrate, and let off fireworks, and wave flags, and clap your hands, and go around town beeping your car's horn, you know, that is somebody really showing their true colors. They're showing support for terrorism. They're showing that whoever they are, they have absolutely no affinity with the values of this country. But there are also people who've been on the borders of this a very long time. And what the Jewish community has long said is, look at what these people say, look at what they uh, denounce, and look at what they applaud. And We have a real problem with anti Semitism in in this country and across the world. And a lot of people have just said, oh, no, you know, you Jews are uh, complaining about nothing. Um, This is just some form of, uh, you know, sort of political discourse about Israel. Well, what we're seeing right now is it's not. A lot of these uh, supposed discourses about Israel are actually overt support for terrorism right now. And it's terrifying for British Jews to be walking our streets in our cities where we've lived all of our lives and grown up amongst everybody else and suddenly seeing people supporting acts of terrorism right after such a horrific terrorist attack.
2: I agree. And uh, You know, live where I live. Uh, the Jewish community, there they're British, they're part of our nation and they do not deserve this. Might I suggest to you, Gideon, uh, that uh, this situation, this anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic outbreak, is not being helped Uh, by the BBC, the state broadcaster, who bizarrely continues to refuse to classify Hamas as terrorists, uh, as if they're some sort of bold freedom fighters, you know, militant freedom fighters fighting for their cause and their country. Uh, It really doesn't help that the BBC has dug its heels in about this. The king. Let's call them terrorists. They call these terror attacks. Uh, The Prince of Wales, William, and his wife, uh, Kate, have said the same thing. This nation officially classifies Hamas as a terrorist organisation. So do many other nations around the world. Why on earth will the BBC not do the same?
0: I think that's something that's actually really starting to uh, cause a lot of concern amongst British Jews because most countries in the world consider Hamas to be a terrorist organisation. The UK does, the EU does, uh, the United States does. All of the civilised world is united in condemning this barbaric group. They consider them to be just like Islamic State, and I think everybody agrees on that. But for some reason, the BBC and some of the other broadcasters insist on calling, on calling the militants, as though people who shoot babies and children point blank in the head, are somehow pursuing some kind of militant objective. That's not what it is. It's terrorism. And when you fail to call it terrorism, when you fail to call it terrorism, you are essentially giving a tacit signal to people who support this group that maybe it's not that bad.
2: Indeed. And uh, the BBC said that to call, or rather, John Simpson, their veteran, uh, highly respected, venerable uh, foreign editor been at the BBC, as I keep saying, since the Jurassic period, Uh, he says that uh, to call Hamas terrorists would be to take sides. Uh, Now, I know the BBC uh, is almost obsessive about being unbiased. It's not very good at being unbiased, but it's obsessive about pretending to be unbiased. Uh, But I would suggest, uh, you know, this is our state broadcaster. We pay for it. It's okay to take sides against people who execute people on their doorsteps, who behead babies, who rape and pillage and uh, in an utterly unjustified way commit atrocities. It's okay to take sides against people like that, isn't it? Well, yes, and
0: the BBC does take sides. I mean, if you take a different issue, let's say, for example, climate change, Every time you've got a scientist on the BBC saying that the climate is changing, the BBC doesn't put on somebody else saying that it's not. If people say that, uh, you know, if you have, for example, an activist from Black Lives Matter, the BBC doesn't put on some white supremacist to go on alongside them. And there are two things really here. One is... Um, that it's not taking sides to call a terrorist organisation a terrorist organisation. It's an objective fact. The objective of the organisation is the annihilation of Jews, worldwide, by the way, not just in Israel, through the means of terrorism. And secondly, I'm very comfortable taking sides against terrorists. I think most people should be. And the BBC has done in the past. They called Daesh a terrorist group. They do call different terrorist groups terrorist groups. But Hamas, for some reason, gets a special pass from the BBC. And that is what is really disturbing for a lot of us British Jews, thinking if we can't call this kind of barbarity terrorism, what is terrorism for the BBC? At what point has a line been crossed that the BBC considers to be objectionable?
2: Uh, Gideon, excellent to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, We're going to move straight on now uh, to someone who was at uh, the Supernova Music Festival in Israel. Uh, That brutal attack on Saturday uh, caused the death of more than 260 people. Their bodies have been recovered. Uh, The site was one of the first targets for the militants who later took at least uh, 150 Innocent Israeli civilians hostage. Around 3,500 young people attended the festival that day, and we are able to speak now to someone who uh, fortunately survived. Uh, Stavash Huli joins me from Israel now. Thank you uh, very much for joining us, Stavash. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, what a horrific thing for you to experience. Uh, Tell me what it was like. I mean, presumably at one point, you're all enjoying yourself, listening to the music. I've seen the footage, all dancing away. What then happened?
5: Was there suddenly a hail of bullets? What happened? It started only the missiles, uh, the rockets from Gaza, something that we already know, nothing new to us, didn't get us too excited because there's nothing we could do. We know the drill. They shoot rockets at us and uh, we just need to keep our heads down and stay safe. And um, once we understood the situation, the terrorists, they got into Israel, we really quickly understood that it's a much bigger situation. It's the beginning of the war. And the only thing that we can do is just run for our life and pray for someone to save us. Don't stop running. So, so, so,
2: Tavash, you and your friends... As soon as you heard the bullets, uh, you just turned tail and ran literally for your lives. As you were running, did you see people being shot down? I mean, you must have witnessed uh, uh, horrific
5: scenes. We we were shot down. Friends near me, were running next to me, and just while we were running, fell down, and I didn't have the time to look back or check oh if someone God. was still running behind me. Just run for your life, hiding bushes, hiding holes in the ground, everything you can just think of. It would save you. You Just don't look back and start running. God. Some of my so, friends... So you're, you're running,
2: you're running, you're, all of you, running for your lives, literally running for your lives. And as you're running, all, you're seeing your friends, uh, you're seeing them felled, falling to the ground, shot by bullets, uh, just hoping that the next bullet doesn't hit you. That's all you could do.
5: Everyone stopped uh, and tried to hide. I heard, I heard some... Horrific stories from my friends, got stuck and got shot at. The only thing you could do is run as fast as you can and don't look back. The the moment you stopped is the moment to get shot. It was huge, huge chaos. Shooting from every direction that we went, still bombing all over our head. We didn't get excited from the bombing from the Rock Pits because... We knew the the bullets are much more lethal and would kill us the second they would hit us. And we are all I'm soldier in the IDF, I'm a warrior. And I think the thing that say does is, we are all warriors the group that, that ran with me. So we had the thinking of how how to behave in a battlefield and where where is try right to hide and where do you need to get down and when you need to run. So. Once we got into the situation and uh, figured out what we need to do and then understood the situation, we understood that all you could do is wrong.
2: Did you understand what was happening? I mean, there you are, all of you and your friends, 260 of whom, I'm afraid, are now dead. There you all are, enjoying a concert. Suddenly, uh, the air is full of the crack, crack, crack of bullets. People are being killed. Did you understand, did you have any idea, any notion... Of what the hell was happening?
5: We understood it's a biggest story. It's a biggest situation. It's a, something more than what we used to. Um, we, we saw the, we heard the bullets whistling around us, and we knew that it's not just another attack like we're used to have here with the rockets and the surprise attacks that are doing us. Um, we just figured out while we were we were running because every. T- few kilometres we tried to see if there's some place we could go to get some water, some shade or shelter because we had no water with us. We, we ran around like six hours, seven hours in the sun in the fields, uh, got hydrated. We drank water from the from the fields with the pipes. We tore them apart to just a few drops of water to, to wet, wet our head and to not get uh, heated and hydrated. So So, just while while we were going, we tried to figure out where we could go. And every place we tried to go to was um, already with terrorists inside it. Um, Already was a battle zone itself. So no place was safe. That that was the, the general feeling. No place was safe. No one. You can trust no one but yourself. You can do nothing but what your instincts and your survival instincts tell you to do and So you kept kept on running for
2: for six and seven hours. Uh, Did you, uh, Davesh? did you lose uh, any close friends? Did you lose friends
5: personally to you? Most of my friends at my age are soldiers now or just got re-recruited back to the army. Um, So I've been already to seven funerals the past week and I would go to more if I had time. My parents' neighbour's son is uh, kidnapped um, we're hoping to find him, but no-one knows anything about him. He was in uh, one of the 60s nearby in Delhi, near, near if you heard the story. Could, um, Deves, and,
2: tell, me, tell me what life in Israel is like now. I mean, presumably, I mean, obviously, life has not returned to normal. I mean, are people going to work? I mean, what, what, is, what is happening there at the moment? I mean, everybody must be, uh, A, terrified, and B, furious. Uh, with what has happened. Uh, what is the mood like and what is life like? Is there any sense of normality at the moment or are you all on a war footing?
5: Everybody got recruited back to the army. So most workplace don't work. Mostly the s- essentials like supermarkets and pharmacies and stuff like that. And everyone knows someone Everyone knows a name that is still there, still don't know where it is. Uh, name someone that died, someone that is injured. Everyone knows everyone. Uh, so it's a feeling of sadness and grief and revenge. E- everyone feels the same because we're all in, in the same boat. There's no one that didn't, didn't know someone or still knows someone and waits for our answers and we're all waiting to hear for our friends, for our families.
2: I get that general um, feeling of chaos. Uh, indeed, uh, and uh, I mean, what next for you? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier uh, that uh, most of your friends have been recruited as reservists. Uh, we're hearing stories that uh, you know uh, more than four hundred thousand Israeli soldiers. Uh, 300,000 of them reservists are gathering on the Gaza border waiting to uh, invade. Uh, what about you personally? What's ahead for you in the next few days?
5: Uh, I took my time at home uh, before going back to the army. Just being a bit with my friends, getting my mind calm and back together before before going back to fight. As soon as i feel it's my time to fight, I go back to the first lines and do whatever I can to help
2: Here's to you, this One last question. I mean, there's a few things uh, I'd like to say to uh, Hamas, uh, and I know I speak for millions of other people in this country. Uh, what they did uh, was grotesque. What would you like to say to Hamas right now?
5: Start saying goodbye because uh, we've had enough and that is the final, final war. Give, give us everything you've got because we're going to give you everything that we've got
2: uh it's been fantastic to talk to you. I'm so glad you survived uh, and uh, very brave of you to tell this story. Thank you very much. Now, a Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, says he's taking on a powerful interest group, NIMBYs. He has apparently promised to bulldoze through... Uh, See what he did there? Opposition to local housing developments, even if it means taking on his own MPs. Joining me to talk about uh, the state of our housing market and some of today's other big stories is property expert and political commentator Russell Quirk. Uh, Russell, now, uh, Sir Keir Starmer says he'll take on the NIMBYs. Uh, Is he close to winning your vote? Uh, that'll be the day.
4: <laughs> what? No, you say that. I mean, uh, no, you actually agree with him? Obviously. I do agree with him. It's probably the, um, the most sensible thing I've heard from a Labour politician since, well, ever, frankly. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he, he's, look, he's absolutely right to say this, and it does take quite a bold politician to actually say that he's going to take on not just the Nimbies, who, frankly, Kev, hold councillors to ransom every week, every month, across planning issues and planning committees across Britain uh, on a kind of constant basis. But the fact that he's going to take on Labour MPs that of course see themselves as having to fight for their constituents, you know, so you get a little cul-de-sac, field at the end of a cul-de-sac, someone wants to put six houses in there and of course the entire populace, or rather the vocal minority of that populace, will kick off and say to councillors, if you don't support the objection to this development, it's outrageous, Uh, we won't vote for you at the next election. and MPs, of course, even though they stand up, uh, you know, in terms of the whole policy of house building thing and say, yes, we need to build more houses. And the consensus seems to be 300,000 new homes need to be delivered every year. Mm-hmm. When it comes to pressure from constituents, they cave in. So, look, I, I welcome this. But, of course, as with all, the, all of these political announcements and all of these headlines, will he actually do it? Or is he just talking about doing it? Um, But, look, one thing is for sure. We will end up probably this year, as a consequence of where we are on the economy, with probably 150,000 new homes being built. Uh, We haven't built 300,000 homes, which has been our target since the days of the Macmillan government.
2: Well, he's talking about, uh, in the end, 1.5 million homes, as you say, uh, redefining the green belt. He's talked about the green belt, then they talked about brown fields, and now they're talking about grey fields, as if this is a nation full of... Disused car parks and former garages. Uh, but it's he has it has a point.
4: He has a point. Well, so, yep. so the green belt is
2: massive. But Wait. so do people who don't want houses at the yeah, end yeah, of yeah, the street. But, right.
4: But here's the reality check: only nine percent of Britain is built on, and only about half of that is residential. Mm-hmm. So only about four or five percent of Britain has actually got houses on it. The green belt. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure that some people will take objection to what I'm about to say, but it is statistically true. The green belt has got bigger over the last fifteen or twenty years. So it's not like the green belt is under threat. It's mm-hmm. actually Growing, And, of course, we have positive net migration, people living longer. We have about 25% of households are now in single occupancy. So where on earth are these people going to live if we don't build enough homes, including the not-so-desirable bits of the Greenbelt? I agree with Keir Starmer. I can't believe I just said that. I agree with Keir (laughs) Starmer. Get get out of the studio. (laughs) Uh,
2: No, seriously, uh, uh, is this a a complete uh, private enterprise uh, enterprise? Uh, is, Is Keir Starmer saying he'll get developers to build houses on, uh, you know, newly released green areas uh,
4: and they make the profits. Is there any expense to the government here? Well, look, you, look, your point's well made because even if we change planning, so even if we take a lot of the politics out of the planning system and we reform the planning process, mm-hmm. even if we release, let's say, 1% of the green belt, and actually if we did release 1% of the green belt, that would create about six or 700,000 new homes. The problem is... If developers don't want to build those homes, mm. even though they've got planning permission for right. them, then they won't. Um, and, and we are currently, and again, you know, I'll choose my words carefully, but we are, as a nation, almost held to ransom by the top ten house builders, not the little builders, the SMEs that actually I think should have much more clout. The top ten house builders, you know, the likes of let's name a few: Bovis, Taylor Wimpey, Persimmon, and so on. They. Are, they focus on what their shareholders want, which means if the market isn't conducive with selling a load of houses at top price, mm-hmm. like now, they will simply hold back... They hold the land, enough, don't they? And they've got a land bank head right now, of something like 700,000 plots, that many of which have got planning permission. They could develop them if they wanted to, but this is the problem. When we're trying to deliver housing for Britain and for society, particularly affordable housing and social housing, if the developers say no then that's it, it doesn't matter what you do elsewhere. So actually what we've got to do is unlock that problem, get the politicians out of the way, empower SME builders to start building a lot more so that those big house builders don't have quite the stranglehold on Britain as they do.
2: Okay, stand by for my Keir Starmer impression. We will build houses, not where developers want them, but where the people want them. What the hell does that mean? What? Exactly what I've just they, said. They, no, but they. Will I can't believe be I'm agreeing with Keir Starmer and disagreeing
4: yeah, but, with the but, great but Kevin O'Sullivan. They, but, but the people.
2: The, the people they do not have a say in where houses no, no, they are built do. the they developers do. well they don't buy the land no, they, they don't do. build the houses but, developers Right, do they that. do
4: so so the the whole the, the the democratic accountability within planning is in what's called the local plan which is introduced and voted upon at local council level every 5 years or so you know those councillors represent those individuals yeah, okay. the public so yeah, gotcha. there, there is a democratic mandate um that the problem the far bigger problem as i said at the beginning of this is those Individuals, literally ten or twenty of them in a in a town, mm-hmm. that can stop infrastructure and housing being built just because they don't want it. My my, my question to those nimbys: Where are your kids and your grandkids going to live if you keep stopping the development of little bits of britain where on earth are your I, children going to live? I take your point russell but people don't think like that what they I think agree. is
2: i really like my view this field and lovely trees i don't want houses there and i want that to be in a will, park at waitrose that they will they always be is. a big problem but uh, point taken uh let's talk about mortgage prisoners Uh, First of all, what are mortgage prisoners? And they've been described as a ticking time bomb. Explain.
4: So this is uh, in one of the papers today. Look, mortgage prisoners, it's such a very, very small amount of mortgage holders. And and again, let's be clear, and and I hate to do this again, but let's use facts rather than kind of hyperbole, as some of these commentators do. Um, You know, not everybody has a mortgage. Something like a third of homeowners don't have a mortgage, and many of them are on fixed rates. But when we talk about mortgage prisons, what we mean are those where they are underwater, if you like, in terms of the amount of mortgage that they have outstanding versus the value of their home. The truth is, the reality is that since the pandemic, even though house prices have dropped back by 4 or 5% over the last 12 months or so, most people, although it varies regionally, their homes are worth about 20% more than they were before the pandemic. So there really aren't very many people at all that are in what we would call negative equity. So... To grab a headline on the basis that there's, the perception is that there's tens and hundreds of thousands of people that can't sell their homes because the mortgage is higher than the value it simply isn't true. OK. Uh, what about uh, 35-year mortgage rate
2: hits all-time high while interest rates soar? financial moron
4: here what does that all mean? (laughs) So this is the introduction and the proliferation now of longer period mortgages so historically you know when you and I were younger uh, not that long ago uh, the average term of a mortgage would have been 25 years now a lot of lenders are offering and buyers are taking up 35 year mortgages now Again, you know, some of the the commentary we have kind of uh, put their hands up in disgust at the fact that now it's going to take 35 years to pay off your mortgage. But the reality is we're all living longer. So so what, you know? And so what if you decide as a matter of free market choice that you want a 35-year mortgage? That's fine. That's a matter of few. But yes, there are more of them. But of course, house prices have gone up. But then also, so have wages. You know, wages right now, here's another reality check, wages now are outstripping house price inflation by about 10% per annum.
2: Uh, Indeed. Now, uh, it's a buyer's market right now, of course. uh, And uh, that becomes a kind of vicious circle. And uh, we've now got the fastest fall in UK house prices for 14 years. This is because property was going down already. So people get involved. uh, They want to buy a house. Well, prices are low, and that means that uh, the prices continue to plummet. Uh, plummet, really? Uh, well, go down. You don't like? <laughs> I don't like that. One. Well, like, I'm true. just putting forward the theory. <laughs> uh,
4: I'm no property expert, as I'm probably. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, it's the headline writers. And look, look we, we all are yeah, very they love familiar. that, don't they? We're familiar with Fleet Street here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yes, the fact. Yes, I do know about Fleet Street. You, you do, right? Yeah. It's, it's definitely still rubbing. I on. don't know about property, but I know about Fleet <laughs>
6: Street.
5: Yeah, go and, and
4: look, it, it's it's a wonderful headline to use, I think. That you know, house prices are crashing. House prices are plummeting. Uh, 12 months ago, as a consequence of that famous quasi-quarting budget, lots and lots of uh, politicians, lots of economists were talking about a house price crash. Some people saying that house prices might drop 35% in the next year or two. Well, we've seen a 4% drop, which, you know, is OK, especially if you're not selling your house. Who cares? Um, but the fact is that this whole property market where we are right now, in terms of that adjustment on price, the fact that transactions have eased a little bit, the fact that interest rates are at the heady heights of 5.25%, that's normal. We've got to stop, I think, the hyperbole that we are in a terrible position and people can't afford their mortgages. It's just simply not true. Uh, Let's talk about uh, people who want
2: to get onto the property uh, ladder. We at uh, Talk TV uh, put a kind of question out. We asked uh, you at home uh, if it meant you could get onto the property ladder, would you be willing to relocate to hotspots like hotspots like Hull and Falkirk? Uh, here's uh, the answers we got. Uh, yes, uh, they would be willing to relocate to Hull or Falkirk or other hotspots. Nineteen uh, percent said that. Uh, uh, maybe nine percent. Uh, no. Uh, they would not consider moving to somewhere like Hull or Folkestone. 71%. So there's another problem. Geographically, people mm. are not adventurous, are they?
4: Well, for, for a couple of reasons. A, because their roots are wherever they live, you know, yeah. family and friends. But also it's a question of jobs, of course. No disrespect to the people of Hull, but it's probably not as economically buoyant as, you know, Wandsworth, is it? Mm. Let's be honest. Um, so, you know, trying to encourage people to move somewhere else to save money is all very well and good in terms of the theory. However, and I know I'm sure we don't want to get into the whole HS2 debate here. Um, we have actually, my PR firm has done some research recently insofar as how far out people are willing to live as commuters, and actually that has now got greater and greater so in other words a lot of people now are willing to live an hour maybe even an hour and a half away from where they work to save a lot of money on the price of their property you know if you were to move let's say from i don't the east end of london out towards colchester you know which might therefore take you another 50 minutes to get into work on the train the house would be half the price of the one in the east end of london so people are definitely adapting in that respect but working in london and living in hull yeah Not surprisingly. That's quite a commute. Not going to happen, is it?
2: That's quite a commute. I've been to Hull and back and all that. Uh, uh, What about, uh, you know, basically renting? I mean, you know, obviously property is very prohibitive for a lot of people, Hmm. uh, even if they can land themselves a decent job. People with good jobs struggle to afford to buy a house these days. when I was a kid, when I was younger, I mean, it was almost sort of rite of passage. You know, you, you left university, you around on a job for, you know, after a year in a job, you get a mortgage, you could get your first property and that's the way, and then you're off. Yeah. Not that, uh, that availability isn't around anymore. Uh, what about generation rent? I mean, rents are going up and up and up, aren't they? So yeah. again, This is a vicious cycle, isn't it? People can't afford to get on the property markets anyway, and they certainly can't when they're paying sort of 2,500 quid a month for a matchbox uh, in the middle of a
4: city. So, Arguably, I think the rental market is in more crisis than the sales market. The fact that rents are up nearly 10% year on year, uh, particularly as a lot of people that can't buy at the moment or don't want to buy because of what they perceive the housing market to be doing, they're bound to rent instead. So that increases demand. Uh, the fact that the population's growing obviously in itself creates demand. The, the other issue is, frankly, the way that the government over the last few years has treated landlords, uh, You know, the way it's taken away certain concessions around tax and capital gains tax, uh, the way it's about to, although it keeps delaying things, uh, going to introduce this imposition of uh, basically not being able to remove a tenant uh, when you want to as a landlord. All of this has encouraged landlords to flee the market. So the latest numbers show that something like 35%, there's 35% less rental stock in Britain than there was before the pandemic. So you've got demand up for rental property, supply down, it's a collision. And and it's, you know, the, the answer, of course, is more homes, which takes us right back to the beginning of our conversation, which is where I'm afraid Keir Starmer is more right than the Conservative government have been, where frankly, all they do is talk about the rhetoric, the headline grabbing of building more homes, but we just don't see it.
2: As the government tries to get the property market sort of going again, uh, there is, and indeed the financial sector, the banks, uh, the building societies, there's this uh, danger that they could make getting mortgages uh, too easy. Mm. Uh, They could bring down the criteria to such a level that we end up with a sort of 2008, 2009 bubble bursting situation. Uh, Mm. uh, Is that a problem? Is that a worry?
4: Well, no, I mean, there was a thing introduced a few years ago called the MMR, which was a review of how lenders underwrite mortgages. I that
2: was a vaccine.
4: <laughs> well, some might argue. Uh, but the premise of that was that you had to prove that you could afford to pay for your mortgage, even if interest rates increase. which, of course, since then, they have. Um, look, lenders will do what lenders do, which is to try and grab market share for, for, for profit. I, I agree. Let's hope we don't get to a situation like we did in 2006-7, where in pursuit of that profit, lenders start doing all sorts city silly things like Northern Rock did back in the day, where they'd actually lend you up to 125% of your property value. I mean, that was insane. Yeah. Uh, and, and guess what? That went wrong, and Northern Rock had to be bailed out and got sold.
2: I remember I had a mortgage with them. that uh, caused all sorts of <laughs> problems. Uh, yeah, interest rates, uh, you know, they now keep going up. OK, they've sort of uh, seemed to have plateaued after what was it, 14 straight interest rates by the useless Bank of England and it's even more useless Governor Andrew Bailey. Agreed. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. Now, that, of course, uh, was imposed on a generation that had a kind of uh, mortgages that were uh, were not fixed uh, and they weren't used to it. They, they thought the interest rate never, ever went up. Yeah. Well, now that it's gone up, suddenly... Uh, Some of them were facing... Their mortgage bills were going up by hundreds, sometimes thousands of pounds a month. Uh, How many people have defaulted
4: because of that? Is that a problem? Well, repossessions are definitely up, but it's not catastrophic, albeit, look, you know, in the the, the other side of this, of course, is that I mentioned earlier how a big proportion of those that have uh, mortgages are on fixed rates... Over the next 12 months, tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of people will come off their two and three percent fixed rate mortgages and end up having to fix at five to five and a half percent. So, you know, will we see a catastrophe unfold as a consequence of that? Look, again, although that's not desirable, it's not gonna happen on the basis that those people were stress tested at the beginning when they were first underwritten in the first place. But I'd also stress that five percent as a mortgage is not. Terrible, it is normal and and what was abnormal as you've alluded to was being able to get a mortgage fixed at one and a half percent Or people I know that had tracker mortgages where they were paying half a percent interest on their mortgage That wasn't normal and it certainly wasn't sustainable now where we are is a a reality check It's back to kind of where it has been historically for probably the last 30 or 40 years
2: Uh, indeed and uh... Where are we going then with it? What's your prediction then uh, for the next couple of years? I mean, ch- chances are we'll have a change of government. I wonder how that will affect things. Uh, but generally speaking, I know you're always an advocate that uh, you know this property market. All the doom. i are quite wrong and that the property market in a country like Britain will always be healthy uh, are I think we it's resilient? Are yeah. we on an upward trajectory do you think
4: no no I, I what I firmly believe and so far I've been proven right is that despite everything that this world can throw at the UK property market you know and, and not just the current economic situation of course but the pandemic uh, and brexit and the uncertainty around brexit, All we've seen generally, apart from the blip over the last 12 months, is house prices increasing. So what do I see over the next two, three, four, five years? I see hopefully a more normal property market, about a million transactions on an annual basis. House prices up maybe a couple of percent a year, which I think is fine, is manageable, that's normal. Um, But yes, it all depends what governments do. The biggest danger, I think, is that as we get towards the next general election at the end of next year, Kev, what we might see is Rishi Sunak doing what he did during Covid, which is to start chucking money at people to win votes. So if he introduces, for instance, stamp duty holidays again to shore up the property market uh, and he starts throwing money at people, we could actually end up in another situation where the property market starts to overheat again.
2: What about the disparity between the cost of property in various areas of the country, G.H., uh, give us your name next time, has uh, sent us a text uh, saying, uh, for the price of a house in London, uh, in Hull, you could get a whole street. You could uh, buy Hull, <laughs> Sorry. The whole <laughs> <laughs> I'm selling my house,
4: I'm going to buy Hull. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, is that a problem? Well, look, it, it's, it's all about supply and demand, isn't it? You know, um, the, the, the reason, it's not that those areas are cheap, it's actually the other way around, in my opinion, is that London and the South East are so buoyant economically. You know, we are, or were once, the financial capital of the world, and, and we have the kind of halo effect of that in London and the South East. That's why there's huge demand for property in the South East, which, in turn, is why house prices are as high as they are. Um, but, yes, there's, there's a huge difference in cost. You know, we talk a lot about the housing market and house prices Generally, I'm asked that question all the time, what a house price is doing. Well, the answer is, well, that depends, yes, exactly what you say, Kev. That depends where you live because the market in the northeast of England compared to the southwest of England compared to even borough to borough in London is very, very different in terms of the economics that relate to what happens in those specific areas. So, But that's a good thing, I think. So back to your comment earlier about we'll move somewhere else. At least we are—we have a nation where the free market allows you to actually go and search for places where house prices are much, much lower than uh, where you uh, where you where you live otherwise.
2: Yeah, I'm told that in London, that uh, south of the River Thames, the property is uh, cheaper than north. But yes. I, I've never been it's there. True. Um, uh, ah, last... No tube networking yeah, <laughs> <the laughs> I've of never that. been to south of the river. And I've, I've, I've heard stories about it, but. Uh... Never ventured there, but uh, seriously, uh, so uh, give us some advice. If I wanna buy a house now or a flat somewhere, where would be the best best investment? Where where should I uh, be looking
4: at? Well, I, I think, fun enough, based on what Rishi Sunak was saying, you know that that fateful speech that he made about, uh, you know, going to Manchester to tell the people of Manchester he was cancelling their rail <laughs> was, was quite an interesting uh, tactic, I thought. Um, but actually, if he actually does deliver and has the time to deliver the network and infrastructure improvements across the north of England, you know, particularly the east-west rail traffic, if you like, rather than this whole north-south thing then there will be areas of the north that as a consequence of that infrastructure improvement and regeneration will become very, very interesting in terms of the, the increase in demand and therefore uh, prices. Um, my advice also to everybody always is look at university towns where there's you know an expanding university. Okay. And if you want to invest, sure. you go and buy student accommodation and you'll end up with capital appreciation and also an increasing rent and therefore a better yield as well.
2: Great advice. Uh, Russell Quirk, property expert, thanks so much for dropping by. Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of me, Kevin O'Sullivan, on Talk TV. And now there have been six faithful maulings over the past year carried out by dogs known or suspected to be the XL bully breed. Uh, The latest victim was Ian Langley, a father aged 54, who died after an attack while walking his puppy in Sunderland in October. Uh, Here to discuss what should have been already done to mitigate these vicious and brutal attacks is criminal defense lawyer, Nick Freeman. Uh, Morning, Nick. Morning, Kevin. Now, you uh, maintain uh, that actually, I mean, the government has made a big song and dance about, we're going to bring in this new law to ban these evil, terrible killer dogs. Uh, now, this was subsequent to their previous Dangerous Dogs Act, uh, which uh, sort of ludicrously brought in kind of Staffordshire Terriers family dogs. It wasn't a particularly good act. But you say under the terms of that act, XL, Bully dogs uh, were actually banned, so they're already banned. Is that uh, what you're saying?
6: That, that's right. Well, the Dangerous Dogs Act, act is 1991. Actually, they did moot bringing in Staffy, Staffordshire Bull Terriers, but that that was uh, there was about 300,000 people who signed a petition, and th- th- there are four breeds, but a Staffordshire Bull Terriers and one of them. But what, one of the four dogs is a pit bull, um, and the bully XL, which is a relatively new breed. It was it started in America in about the 1980s and it was recognized by the American Kennel Club in 2013. So we're talking about a brand-new breed here. And basically, if you you like, it's a a Staffordshire-type, pit bull-type dog on steroids with huge muscularity, huge ferociousness, huge strength. And obviously, I'm saying those things. That's what it's bred for. I'm not saying all of those dogs are, are like that. But the point is that the Act specified four breeds, but it then went on to say, and it included, any crosses of pit bulls. Uh, Uh, And the Bully XL is basically a cross with a pit bull, an American bull terrier uh, and an American Staffordshire bull terrier. And and sometimes they have the old English bull terrier put in as well. So it bears the resemblance of a pit bull. Um, And and in my mind, it completely fits the current legislation. And these dogs should be seized immediately. And I don't know why there is such prevarication. These dogs are responsible for... Um, a a massive proportion of dogs' deaths, over 50% of all dog deaths um, in relation to human fatalities. It's almost like walking down the street and having a lion that that might have been fed or might not. Uh, There's been six human fatalities in in recent times, which is just utterly ridiculous. And then, of course, there are the attacks that fall short of fatality, um, which leave horrendous injuries. And the dogs are so strong that you just cannot handle them when they turn. Uh, And unfortunately, it is often the case... These dogs are owned by people who don't bring out the best qualities of them, they don't look after them properly, they're kept in cramped conditions and they're taught to be aggressive, they're taught to be attack dogs and, of course, they escape from their insecure yard. So, you know, in my view, the government should introduce emergency legislation, um, get it in very quickly. Um, It's delaying, it's prevaricating, as it often does, um, unless it's going to invoke the current legislation. The government has already indicated there will be an amnesty um, so these dogs are not going to be put down. But it is important to bear in mind that the current legislation says it's it's against the law to have a dog dangerously out of control in any place. That, sh- that can be a private place or it can be a public place. There is already legislation with teeth, but it doesn't really seem to be doing the job. And I just think that the authorities are being lackadaisical uh, and using the legislation as an excuse for not actually doing what needs to happen.
2: Yeah, is it not the case, Nick, as you alluded to there, that, uh, you know, regardless of whether we go back to the Dangerous Dogs Act or uh, the government's proposed new act to ban XL bullies, the fact that anyone who's already got an XL bully will be able to keep their XL bully. uh, So, of course, there are people who own male XL bully dogs and people who own female XL bully dogs. Uh, they will not be destroyed. Uh, they'll be able to breed. What is the point of banning them? No, no, no. They they won't. They 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 will
6: be subject to stringent conditions. So the first thing is they'll need to be registered. They'll need to be assessed. They will need okay. to be neutered. Um, there will be. You cannot take them out in a public place unless the dog is on a lead and muzzled. Um, so there are serious restrictions to be imposed. Um, in effect, they're the same restrictions that, imposes when a, that are imposed when a dog has an exemption, and these dogs are basically will, will be given an exemption certificate. That you'll have to report the dog straight away. They'll be examined by an expert. And obviously, the expert's got to decide, in his view, if that dog is dangerous, then unfortunately it will be euthanized. But all the dogs that are allowed to live, it, will not, there's not going to be an automatic culling of all bully XLs. It will just be in the, the odd case where they are, very aggressive because of the way they're brought up. The majority will be subject to very restric- um, stringent restrictions um, of the sort that I've just alluded to. So uh, and you... also people will have to have insurance as well. Yeah. Uh, so. And they will have to be kept in a secure a secure place. So, um, you know, that, that that's what needs to happen. And this will go on for a period of time until such time as they fall within the specific category of, of a pit bull or a... Um, uh, you know, a, a, the, the other three breeds that are currently banned, Doggo Argentina and uh, Fila Brasilia, you never see those in the streets in any event. Uh, and there's a fourth breed.
2: Yeah. Uh, last question, uh, Nick. Uh, I mean, your, your point is well made. Uh, there's a thing about dogs, though. Uh, It's a bit like drugs, Uh, do you remember? They they kept changing the formula of drugs and therefore they weren't Mm. covered by the law. Well, you could do that with dogs. You can very quickly come up with a new Mm -hmm. breed uh, that will be out of uh, of the realm of this act. So that's a problem as well, very quickly.
6: Well, it's appearance that counts. And if the dog resembles a pit bull type, then it falls foul of the legislation. And, And that is currently the position and they need to enforce that, and and to me that covers all eventualities, um, and and of course that does not in, include Staffordshire Bull Terriers. Very good point, that. Nick.
2: Very good point, Nick. Excellent to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Welcome back, you are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Now Donald Trump's on trial again, uh, accused along with the Trump organization and two of his children of fraud falsification of business records, issuing false financial statements, and conspiracy. Uh, Joining me now from Washington uh, is the managing editor of Inside Sources, easily my favorite Mike Graham. It is the other Michael Graham, the American version, and a damn good version he is too. Welcome, Michael.
1: I am the real Michael Graham. I just want that laid out right now. Accept no substitutes. Great Britain. Well, I've got a friend not far from here who would dispute that. uh,
2: (laughs) But uh, good to have you on board, Mike. Uh, Tell us uh, about the latest on this fraud trial. Do you know what I find extraordinary about this legal attempt to once and again undermine uh, presidential wannabe Donald Trump? This is about him uh, allegedly inflating his wealth in order to get uh, generous loans uh, for his business, for his building corporation. Uh, Now, he got these loans uh, and uh, then he paid them all back. Uh, A lot of them came from the Deutsche Bank. No-one who gave him these loans uh, is complaining. Uh, So the loans were taken out, were repaid, and now we've got
1: this, an attempt to say, well, it was all fraud. This is nonsense, (laughs) isn't it? Well, I mean, once again, it's kind of a technical thing about debating or what was the property worth at the time he got the loan, and what do, well, how, and as Trump pointed out in his, he was at, uh, giving a speech in New Hampshire on Monday uh, to a, a huge crowd because in all of the early states he has a solid twenty to thirty point lead in the Republican primary. He said, "Look, if they want to say that uh, Mar a Lago is valued, at, I think they it was eighteen million dollars. I think it was the number. I, I've got someone who called me and said I want ten of them." So you know, what is the property worth? You know, that's always subjective, that changes year to year. The main thing is nobody not named Donald Trump would be facing these charges or facing the uh, possible consequences. One of the things that uh, some of the folks on the Republican side who honestly believe that this is a form of a lawfare, that is this isn't just people enforcing the law because they have to, this is using the law to wage warfare on political enemies, They say that this may actually be the most uh, problematic uh, uh, trial for Trump because it hits him where it really hurts, which is his money. These other cases that involve allegations of you know, criminal behavior involving mishandling documents or being involved in a conspiracy, they're going to drag on. There's going to be a lot of appeals that certainly will not be resolved before November of 2024. But this case, he could be hit with a fight over money. And, you know, that's, is there anything that Donald Trump prizes more than his standing as a billionaire? It's hard to think of anything. And so it could really hurt. As you say, uh, Donald Trump calls this
2: law lawfare, uh, the Democrats pulling all the strings of the legal machinery uh, to put him on trial, to indict him for as many alleged offences as possible, and therefore undermine him as a potential president of the United States. Uh, he's a presidential candidate in all but name right now. Uh, the Republicans aren't going to stop him getting that nomination. Uh, But the thing is, uh, if it is the Democrats who are doing this, and I think we can assume that it is, that they're behind the scenes organising all these indictments, uh, how's that going for them? Because every time he gets indicted, his popularity soars. Uh, Not really working, is it?
1: So uh, before the first indictment was announced, there was a real uh, surge for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, if you uh, watch his career... Uh, he's definitely in the same lane as many of the Republican uh, Republicans who support Donald Trump. So there's a lot of thought, oh, here's basically Trump without the baggage. And uh, our polling at Inside Sources, also our reporting in South Carolina, New Hampshire, and Iowa showed that Republicans were interested. They are like, man, you know, maybe Trump has reached his sell-by date. Maybe the other issues are too big. We'll take a look at him. As soon as the indictment dropped— That completely changed. Republicans rallied around Trump, and they've continued to rally. His support's actually been getting stronger. Uh, There were three national polls in the last seven to ten days where more than 60% of Republicans said Trump was their pick in the Republican primary nationwide. His numbers in the uh, early states aren't quite as high, but they're they're still huge. They're still well in the 40s and still, you know, 20 to 30 points ahead of anyone else. So the argument is actually Democrats want to run against Donald Trump because they believe Trump's high negatives and his baggage make him the only person— that Joe Biden can beat, that if Joe Biden has any prayer of being reelected, it's that he faces off with Donald Trump. But uh, there was a lot of talk in 2016, you may recall, the other Mike Graham, about Hillary Clinton needing to face Donald Trump because she was definitely going to wipe the floor with him. Yeah, yeah not so much. Exactly. And uh, Trump has found a brilliant
2: way to win all the candidates' TV debates by not turning up. Uh, Nothing is going to stop Donald Trump getting that Republican nomination, is it? And I don't believe uh, that Biden can beat him. Uh, I think uh, America's had enough of that old geezer uh, and that Trump will uh, win the presidential election. He's on his way to
1: the White House, isn't he? So, you know, right now it's hard to see any way that he's not the Republican nominee. Uh, that, That seems to work out. And the other thing is... That other events seem to be adding to Trump's probabilities. You mentioned the problems with Joe Biden. There's a brand new poll, uh, inside sources released today, of swing voters in the early state of New Hampshire. These are voters who have voted in both a Republican presidential primary and a Democratic presidential primary in the last four cycles. So they they're willing to go, you know, one side or the other, and they have one two two things in common. One is they hate. Joe Biden and Donald Trump, (laughs) their (laughs) approvals at 33%. But the other thing is they said overwhelmingly by about a 20 point margin, is America stronger today under Biden or was it stronger under Trump? And the Trump number was huge. And with the chaos in Israel, the chaos at the Southern border, there's a real sense from the political experts that we talk to that the number one issue for voters right now in their gut, if you cut through the stuff about inflation, et cetera, is strength. Do you feel like there's someone who can calm things down, can fix problems? And this chaos in Israel lets Donald Trump stand up and say, look, if I were still president, this would not be happening. And you may not agree with that, but you can't say that it's a specious or irrelevant argument. When he says, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Israel, Joe Biden, a lot of Americans go, you know, he may have something there.
2: I mean, Biden's claim is, uh, and I think there's some justification of that, the American economy isn't, doing too badly. So he's okay on that front. But socially and culturally, America's in a mess. I mean, the cities, uh, the crime is out of control. Uh, The police are losing uh, their ability to control. Uh, You're looking at a kind of social decline that he's, uh, he has uh, presided over. I mean, Trump is going to be able to make good play of that, isn't he?
1: Uh, yeah I agree but I want to go back on the uh, the economy part. I mean in the theres certain big metrics that show it's it's good, but pro- just the cost of stuff. Buying your groceries, feeding your family, buying gas for your car, it is so significantly higher than when Joe Biden took office. And so there was another poll from Emerson College in Pennsylvania, which is one of those purple states that Trump stole in 2016 from the Democratic blue wall and then narrowly lost to Biden. So it's it's a key state. Democrats basically say, if we can't do Pennsylvania, we probably can't hold the White House. Trump was beating Biden by nine points in that poll yesterday. And a lot of experts think that it's because those blue collar working class, a lot of them union members, they they see all this to the stock market or economic growth or abstract numbers about employment. They're, they and their husbands and wives are struggling just to feed their families. They've, their budgets have been cut way back, credit card debt has been soaring. And that's the part of the economy that for the Demo- the voters that Democrats need to keep from Trump, those blue collar working class voters, they're not in that economy where they make so much money that they don't sweat it if bread goes from four bucks to five bucks a loaf. But those voters that Trump is getting, they do sweat it. It matters. And that's why I think the economy is still a big deal.
0: Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show,
2: 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344-499-1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The
3: Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
6: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.